Hi, and welcome to the Efficient Frontiers International Podcast Series. This is our third podcast on tax. And for these, I'm joined as always by my friend and colleague, Jane Newton. In March of this year, the European Banking Federation released its report that was entitled Lifting the Spell of Dirty Money, the EBF Blueprint for an Effective EU Framework to Fight Money Laundering. Now, the EBF is essentially the voice of the European banks, and their goal is to try and be at the forefront of the fight against financial crime, and they review the regulatory framework around money laundering and terrorist financing, and they try to propose concrete amendments to improve that framework. And one of the things they talk about is why it is that the European crime prevention framework really isn't as effective as it should be. So they've proposed a series of recommendations, and they fall into four categories harmonize, empower, cooperate, and be smarter. In this tax podcast, we're going to look at one of the recommendations the EBF have made in relation to harmonize. And what they recommend is there needs to be more effective exploitation, or as I would say, leveraging of synergies with other legal and regulatory frameworks to promote a global level playing field. And this is a really, really interesting proposal. And it's perhaps one of the first times for me, Jane, that I've actually seen AML KYC and tax KYC. So Jane, these podcasts aren't so or as ad lib as others. Can you just explain for folks again why that's the case? So the regulations and the requirements are very complex and it's so easy to go off piece and off at a tangent and lose the thread of, of what's, what we're trying to explain. So that's why it sounds very prescriptive and scripted. We could be here all day talking about these requirements and the challenges posed by them. And we're ever so grateful for that, Jane. So let's move into our first question. One of the first things they touch upon is in relation to that alignment as it regards to DAC2. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and how that relates to the tax KYC concepts we've covered in the other podcasts? Yes, of course, Sam. This is a highly technical subject. And to understand DAC2, it will be helpful to have a whistle-stop tour of previous attempts by tax authorities to deter and detect tax evasion. Remember, tax evasion is a financial crime and often occurs when either individuals or corporate taxpayers deliberately conceal from the tax authorities their offshore assets, including any income and gains arising from them. An effective way to clamp down on this activity is for tax authorities to collaborate and exchange information with each other in order to increase cross-border transparency. Previously, with limited scope and success, various regimes have been implemented to improve international tax transparency, including, within the EU, the European Union Savings Directive. However, when it became aware that US taxpayers were holding assets and investing outside of the US in order to evade US taxes, the US government implemented the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, known as FATCA, Due to the scope of the US regulations and the punitive 30% withholding tax for non-compliance, FATCA was actually a game changer. Now, without having to wait for the taxpayer to declare them, or without the need to launch investigations, the US tax authority, the IRS, had information on these accounts provided directly to them from financial institutions or via tax authorities around the world where an intergovernmental exchange of information agreement had been signed. 
So the success of FATCO both as a tool and as a deterrent increases speed and impetus for global tax authorities to collaborate effectively to combat tax evasion. Following the introduction of FATCA into US law in 2010, the OECD initiated the development of the Common Reporting Standard, known as the CRS, creating a framework and mechanism for global automatic exchange of information in June 2014. So whilst there's no punitive withholding tax within the CRS, there is political pressure for countries to sign up to participate in a mutually beneficial arrangement in order to bolster these international efforts and reduce the number of jurisdictions where it will be possible for tax evaders to shield their assets. Meanwhile, within the EU, in 2011, the EU Directive on Administrative Cooperation, referred to here as the DAC, was adopted and entered into force in 2013. So the DAC supports the creation of a common approach to administrative cooperation and enhances the framework for the exchange of information amongst EU member states. In December 2014, the European Council adopted the first amendment to the directive, known as DAC 2, that entered into force in January 2015. This amendment broadened the scope of automatic exchange of information to cover financial accounts. So DAC 2 includes the requirements of the CRS. However, the CRS contains a number of options that can apply, and the EU member states agreed which of those should be incorporated into the DAC 2. Although some differences exist between the DAC 2 and the CRS, importantly for DAC 2, the OECD commentaries on the CRS are used as a source of illustration and interpretation, and this is in order to achieve consistency in application across the EU member states. So references to tax KYC concepts in our previous podcasts relate equally to the requirements of FATCA, DAC2 and the CRS. It's not unusual for the directive to be amended using OECD initiatives, but broadening the scope. You may remember, Sam, that we referred in our previous podcast to the EU introduction of DAC6. This is the Fifth Amendment to the DAC on mandatory automatic exchange of information in relation to reportable cross-border arrangements. The OECD has also designed model legislation on mandatory disclosure rules, or MDR, and also an operational framework for MDR exchanges. The MDR focuses on offshore arrangements that have the effect of undermining the reporting obligations under the CRS, or that are structured such that the beneficial owners can't be identified. So DAC 6 includes these elements, but is much broader in scope and also encompasses hallmarks to identify potential cross-border tax avoidance arrangements. In our last series of podcasts, we've talked about how reliance can be placed on the AML KYC performed to satisfy those tax KYC obligations. Can you just remind us again about how this works in practice? Yeah, of course. The financial institutions use the information collected for the purposes of AML KYC for a number of due diligence processes. So the due diligence process applied will depend on whether or not the financial account was opened before or after each of the FATCA and DAC 2 CRS regimes were implemented. So for accounts opened before implementation, we refer to these as pre-existing accounts. For accounts opened after, these are referred to as new accounts. 
Now the AML-KYC processes that we refer to are as follows. So they're used to identify reportable accounts in the pre-existing account population by reviewing the information maintained for regulatory or customer relationship purposes, including AML-KYC. The processes also relate to classifying pre-existing entity accounts based on a standardised industry coding system that's consistent with its normal business practices for the purposes of AML KYC. So it's important to remember that this is satisfactory as long as the financial institution doesn't know or has no reason to know that such a classification is incorrect or unreliable. So the AML KYC information is also used for pre-existing accounts to identify the controlling persons of passive non-financial entities, which we refer to as NFEs. So the complex compliance procedures to establish the tax residency of the passive NFE entity and their controlling persons are then applied to determine their reportable status and if a self-certification is required. Self-certifications are required for all new accounts. So the self-certification identifies the controlling persons of passive NFEs and their tax residency information in a way that isn't possible under standard AML KYC checks. The AML KYC information held is also used for assessing the reasonableness of the tax residency information provided in the self-certification that we collect from the customer. And the information is also used for monitoring changes in circumstances that can impact on the tax residency information held. So there are various due diligence processes where we use uh, the information collected for the purposes of AML KYC. But in this context and for the purposes of this podcast, I think what's most interesting is that that's used in relation to identifying the controlling persons of passive non-financial entities or NFEs because remember those are the entities that the tax authorities are really interested in. So Jane I want to pick up on this passive non-financial entity because in the land of AML KYC that does not exist. We don't have anyone who's a passive customer or an active customer. We either have a low medium or high risk customer. How does this work with passive non-financial entities? I mean, where do they fit in the land of AML KYC as far as you can see? Okay, so as we've discussed in previous podcasts, the tax authorities globally are concerned about wealthy individuals evading taxes by sheltering themselves behind opaque corporate entities and complex ownership structures. So for the purposes of these international tax transparency initiatives, each entity customer and for, the pur- for these purposes, these, this includes trusts and partnerships, must com- classify themselves based on rules prescribed in legislation, either as a financial entity or a non-financial entity that we call NFEs. So if the entity customer is an NFE, they then have to differentiate between an active or a passive NFE. The NFE classification determines how much tax residency information needs to be provided. So for an example, an active NFE just provides the tax residency information of the entity itself, whereas a passive NFE must provide the tax residency of the entity plus any controlling persons that are identified using the AML KYC rules. 
So the passive entities are the one that the tax authorities are most interested in. And the reason that we need to classify them is because that determines the level of tax residency information that is collected. One of the things we're talking about here is harmonization. You know, a lot of people seem to miss a trick when it comes to operationalizing this stuff. So it sounds great on paper. So I can't really see how that might benefit AML KYC. I mean, what's been your experience? In the real world where you've got to operationalize these rules, what I've seen is where an entity customer has been asked to provide a self-certification and the customer has classified themselves as a passive NFE and say they've provided tax residency information for six controlling persons. Now what has to happen with that self-certification to make sure that we have no reason to doubt it is you have to check that the controlling persons are the same as the ones that we hold for AML KYC because what you can get is two different situations. You could have the self-certification identifies say six controlling persons when that's checked against the AMLKYC information held, they could be completely different. And if there are different or there is any differences, what should happen is the AMLKYC team need to then check that their AMLKYC procedures have been followed and to check that there's no gaps or remediation that needs to be dealt with. But if the AMLKYC information in that instance, say, had three of the controlling persons and no more, then what you would use is you would use the self-certification information. So let me see if I understand you correctly, Jane. Let's imagine I have a legal entity who's a customer. We have CKYC for them because they came on board a few years ago. And I understand that there are three shareholders. They've provided some sort of self-certification as a passive non-financial entity owner, controller, but you're looking through the tax stuff and it occurs to you that there's five people identified as having some form of control. Now, I've got a number that says three in my AML KYC. So how does that tax stuff help me again? So what you would need to do is from the AML KYC perspective is check the information that's held to make sure it's the most up to date and all the relevant processes have been followed. Now, what can happen sometimes is that there's change in beneficial ownership and the first time a financial institution gets to know about that might be when the self-certification is received with the tax residency information of the controlling persons. So it's important that the teams talk to each other and coordinate to make sure that the AML KYC information held is up to date and correct. And then that can be matched to the information provided on the self-certification form. So if the self-certification includes more uh, controlling persons, but the AML KYC rules have been followed and that's correct, we would still use for tax reporting purposes the information that's been provided on the self-certification. That was the clearest explanation of why we now have tax included in that ZB paragraph of the UK yeah. money laundering regs. That was yeah. fantastic, Jane. And if you'd like to check out some more of Jane's podcasts on tax KYC, feel free to check them out either on the captivatedaudience.eu website or the efilimited.com website. You can also feel free to drop Jane an email or you can reach out to her as well on LinkedIn. That's all for today. Thanks for listening and have a great day.